the Buddha talks about different kinds of people or, or different categories of people who uh, should be taught. He said there are some who are not looking for anything, so they shouldn't be taught anything. You can't answer a question that hasn't been asked. Then he said there are some who just want to know how to be happy in this life. And he says, for that I have a teaching. But there are some who want to not only be happy in this life, but who recognize that for every cause there is a result, so the, there will be a result to our living, uh, and they may wish to be uh, or have a desire to be born in a heavenly reborn or there be a rebirth linking consciousness in a heavenly destination. He says, and I have a teaching for that. And he says, and there are some who have decided or recognized that it doesn't matter where we are on the wheel of conditioned existence, that it's part of the nature of conditioned existence. There is dukkha. There is unsatisfactoriness. And I have a teaching for those as well. And so when we have a group like this, there are people, all different kinds of minds, all different kinds of aspirations. Uh, and it becomes um, a challenge to speak to each mind here because there needs to be an, an individual evaluation of, of what a mind needs to hear and how to say it in a way that doesn't confuse another mind who's uh, touching a different part of the animal. You understand what I mean? And so um, when we use the suttas uh, as a teaching instrument, we have to recognize its limitations. Uh, it's limited in the fact that we are regurgitating something that he said or supposedly said. I mean, it was over 2,000 years. We don't know for real whether he said it or not. That's why he said, don't, don't just believe it because it's written in the book or because your teacher says so. Um, or because the tradition says so, because that's the way you've always done it. But he said, put it into the cauldron of your experience. And when you see and know for yourself that following this instruction is good, it's beneficial, it works for me, he said, then, then use that one. Now, there's a caveat with that. And that is we have a tendency, because of the conceit I, we have a tendency to look at things and examine things from the ways that we already know things. And so we can already be doing something and that hasn't worked for us. And, and he gives us advice to try something else. And we look at that and we like offhand dismiss it. I know that's not going to work. And we don't do it. Or we try it, we try it for two days, but we've been doing this for 20 years. And we say, oh, that doesn't work because we haven't given it enough time to work. So he talks about first arousing faith or faith in a sense of confidence in the ones whose instructions you're going to follow. If you don't have a confidence that the advice they give is going to be worth following, don't ask them. But if you do, then put it to the test. Give it a try and see. And when you know for yourself then that the advice is good advice, uh, it, is, it is worthy to be t uh, taken, then he says follow that advice. Now what happens is as we approach other uh, issues or, or challenges, we, well that worked over there, but this is something different. This might not, this might not work for me. But he says you can have confidence, you can have faith that this might also work if that worked. And so that's how we grow in what we call the faith, but it's not faith in or belief in some kind of magical thing happening for us, but faith in the Dharma maturing in us so that we are are able to uh, accomplish what is wholesome and what is beneficial and what is what is useful. And so that our happiness will increase and our unhappiness will decrease. Now I have four different Dharma talks today. Uh, <clears throat> and it kind of happens that way for me because um, well, I, I, I pose the question, I say, uh, what is suitable for who's arriving today? On this side of reality, in this, this uh, ma material, uh, phenomenal world, we are captured by time and space. And so there are, we have limitations 
on what we can know. Even the, the physical instrument by which we know external things is limited. So one bandwidth, we see something. Within that bandwidth, we see it in different colors. Another bandwidth, we hear something. Another bandwidth, we have a capacity to taste something. It's, uh, it's like that. And so we have, uh, we're limited on this side. And the Buddha gives us a hack for this limitation. That's where meditation comes in. It's not, it's not designed to help us be happier with our things, um, contrary to what you may have read in almost every Western magazine. It is designed to help us to penetrate the boundary or the barrier of limitation from the illusory world uh, to be able to uh, uh, apprehend things as they really are. And this goes beyond the knowing that we have of, that we have uh, arrived at that's based on the information we've taken in from our sense gates. And that's, you know, like what we see, what we hear, what we taste, what we touch, what we smell, and what we think. All, all of our information, all of our knowing is derived from this, these internal bases, uh, making contact with external bases. Consciousness arises, the three of these make contact, and with contact comes a feeling. That feeling can be pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And when that we have that feeling, depending on whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, we either uh, want to push it away or we want to uh, grasp at it. We want more of, of this. Uh, we like this feeling. We, uh, uh, and so we are caught in this idea that unpleasant things are, are negative and pleasant things are positive. Unpleasant things aren't always negative and pleasant things aren't always positive. But because of our uh, not understanding this, uh, we make missteps and we uh, don't attain the progress that's possible for us to enjoy every day. Every day, reg every day, regardless of what comes, whether it, it, it feels good or not, regardless of what comes, whether it's something that's even positive or not, it doesn't matter. The Buddha said, when my mind is stable, then I am touching Nibbana here and now. He said, but when uh, uh, unpleasantness arises in the mind, the mind becomes agitated. But he said, also, when pleasantness arises in the mind, the mind still becomes agitated. And so this practice is one of getting into that space that's, that is, it's not, uh, it's, uh, sometimes when we talk about pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, it's not neutral in the sense of like it's lukewarm, it's neither hot nor cold. It is a kind of abiding that allows us to be there regardless of what's going on, knowing it's not me, it's not mine, it's not myself. And that uh, adjusts our capacity to live life to its fullest and also to um, give to life some part of ourselves without us feeling like we have given anything. And so we learn in this way how to uh, approach an understanding of of non-self. Sometimes it's translated as no self, sometimes it's not self, like, like if, if this is... I'm not me, who am I? So it's not no self. And, and it's not a, a not um, a self in the way we think of a self. But it's, um, it's non-self in the sense of being a separate, independently arising and present thing, phenomena. He says that, that all conditions are due to causes. There, is a, a, there was a condition that brought about the arising of what came to be known as, Pan, as Diane and later as Panyawadi. There was uh, the combining of the sperm and the egg of my parents along with the rebirth linking con, uh, Gandaba and, the, and that's uh, rebirth linking consciousness. And the three of these produced a being, a being with a mind that wasn't the mother's mind, it wasn't the father's mind, it wasn't its own mind. It was just bringing forward un, um, unsatisfied or un, 
harvested uh, uh, fruit of actions from another mind stream and that found that condition suitable soil for its arising. It's something like that. If you could kind of think in those terms, you can kind of understand some of these things. He's always talking about pointing, pointing, never exactly naming the thing because he said these things cannot be, um, we don't have the words even to express them. He said, but because we don't have the words to express them doesn't mean that they can't be known. They can be known, but maybe he, he always talks about it's something like this. All of the great sages speak in parables and they, you know, they speak in, uh, uh, they use simile and allegory to kind of help us to understand something, but we have to recognize that our words uh, are, are just too limited for some of the experiences that it's possible to have to see uh, reality, the nature of things as it actually is. And so this whole process, this whole learning is, is about that. And different masters taught different things to different groups of people. Uh, it's, um, and because we have different propensities, we have different personalities, we have different temperaments, uh, one teacher may be more suitable for us than another. One teacher's dharma may be more suitable. It may be more easily entreated, and so we accept it. It may, uh, uh, it may be because all the others were too easy, and I need tough love. I need somebody who's like, just speak plainly to me. That, that's kind of how I was. I need, I need somebody to speak plainly uh, to me. And so uh, I love the, the Dharma because it speaks plainly to me. So when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. So there is a place for all conversations, depending on where one is, and it is, it is, um, it is arrogance and conceit that one assumes that, that well, our dharma is better than your dharma or uh, um, our, what we embrace as true, our belief is better than your belief, and to denigrate others, everything in its own time, in its own space. I, I remember one time I was teaching a guy, uh, um, he's a, a psychiatrist, and um, he come to me for uh, meditation lessons, and you know uh, we have these methods out here today, and we have this whole intellectual, you know, um, process that you know we're like trying to help the mind understand the unenlightened mind understand its own delusion. It's like really difficult, you know. So. But, but some people need that. Some people need to have all of that intellectual conversation before they can sort of get out of themselves because that's just their, you know, propensity. That's, you know, some of us just want the short version, you know, and we like to take the shortcut. And so he gave a shortcut for us. So, for instance, uh, he might say, um, you know, I have so many things, so many things, and yet these things don't bring me happiness. They don't bring me pleasure. And so I work at uprooting and abandoning this and giving up that and, you know, cleaning out my closet and letting go of that. And, you know, and, or we can just abandon the sense of self and then you don't have to really give up anything. Everything's gone when the self is not there. So I focus on that, on the abandonment of the self uprooting the conceit I, and along with that, everything that would cause I, or cause me to be uh, uh, upset, you know, I mean, that just gets rendered null, null and void. And plus, I only have one thing to work on instead of lots of things. And so, but you can choose. I mean, he has a plethora of teachings, and, and we can pick and choose. There is a book by Buddha Dasa, one of my, my good friends, you know, and it's funny how in the Dharma you can have Dharma friends, you can have Dharma friends that you've never even met personally, but, but where your friendship comes is around the Dharma itself, and the Dharma in one resonates with the Dharma in another. It doesn't mean that we agree on everything. Um, so I had a good friend that was here teaching this weekend. There's one thing in particular we don't agree on. He thinks everywhere there's a reference to, to devas or celestial beings that it's talking about the privileged human being, you know. 
Uh, and he says, well, it's because I haven't seen any of these. So I'll go with that's, you know, uh, uh, a way of speaking of, of, of privileged people. And so I said, so he said uh, he wanted to have a conversation. I said, how are we going to have a conversation? You haven't seen any of them. You're only going to be talking to me with, about what you don't know about. So we, can't, we, so we agreed to not have that conversation. Um, so what he does is instead of having a conversation, he goes on, he listens to my talks about things. But I also listen to his talks about things. Now, that's how people can get. When they know something for themselves, they are not insecure about what maybe they, are, they don't know or are not sure about, and neither do they try to discourage one who is sure about what they are sure about. They just let everybody hold, hold their own uh, views, uh, hold them loosely. The Buddha said, hold them. You can have opinions. You can, you can have a view. He said, just don't become attached to it. Sometimes, you know, uh, for the last, oh, maybe 15 years, you know, publishers have been asking me to write a book. But I tell you, every day is a new day in the Dharma. And I would say, I can't write a book yet. I can't write a book. And they were like, why? You know, you, you have things you can share with people. And I said, because a year from now when I go read that book, and, that, and I said that, and it's in writing, you know, I would be so embarrassed because I hope a year from now I know more than, I know more than that. And so that's the reason why I won't write a book. When I'm on my deathbed, I'm going to try to get, get out whatever I have and, and share it. But between now and then, every day, learning something new. And it's not always big things, you know. Sometimes it's just a little slight refinement of an understanding, sometimes that, but it changes everything. A little coloring changes everything. A dash of salt makes vegetables palatable. Uh, so, so it's something. It's something like that as we go through this life and as we're learning the Dharma. And when we have come from a perhaps a, a theistic theology. We, we think in terms of God said it and that settles it and I have to do it whether I like it or not and, and whether uh, you know, I'm suffering through it or not and then I start hating God and, and all these kinds of things. But there's a little book, I'm going to order 100 copies. Um, it's called No Religion by um, Buddha Dasa. And the, uh, the gentleman that was here for the weekend, Santi Caro, uh, was uh, a monk in Buddha Dasa's monastery, and he uh, trained with him for 10 years. And he's a, a translator. He is the, uh, I, I believe, the authorized or the translator of um, Buddha Dasa's uh, works and his teachings. And Buddha Dasa was living in a place in Thailand where there was so much of uh, superstition and so much fear. And uh, so that was where he was planted. And so he had to teach people who had a certain understanding around certain, around certain things. It doesn't mean that that's what needs to be taught to everybody everywhere, but that's certainly what they needed, they needed there. And so here we have certain things that we have been indoctrinated by. We see certain signs everywhere. Actually, we don't even see them because they've just become a part of the of the landscape. Uh, so a lot of views, opinions, uh, uh, biases, beliefs, rejections that we have are are based on these silent voices all around us, and we think, "Ah, oh, that's my own thought." Oh no, it's not your thought. Um, I used to uh, wonder. Uh, how I would explain my transition, you know, from from Christianity. Because when I came into the Dharma, they told me this was a, a non-theistic, uh, atheistic uh, religion. And I didn't know what you do with that. I like, if, if, if in the beginning, God only like, where, where do you, you know, if that's uprooted, then where do you start? Where do you go? I, I didn't know what to expect or what I would, you know, how to get started with this. All I know is that the one in whom I believe said, 
for me to go further, because that was my prayer, I need to go further. I feel like I've hit a glass ceiling. And I'm having experiences that I can't understand. And when I go to my pastor and ask him about it, he tells me, oh, that passed away with the apostles. Well, then what just happened last night? And so, and so I needed someone who could uh, help me to understand what was happening and what else there might be, might be to know. And so that's what got me started. And I prayed and I said, Holy Spirit, you got to help me because I have hit a glass ceiling. You know, and the good I would do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, I still do. You said all I need to do was love you with all my heart. I do. I said, it's not you I have a problem with, it's those people out there. And so I need to know what will renew the mind, what will bring my mind in line with my heart so that what I want to do, I do, and what I don't want to do, I don't do. So that I stop harming myself and I stop harming others. Now that was my prayer and I got an answer by way of a vision the next day and I followed that, long story short, that's how I end up, I end up here. Now, and that I can rely on, that I can take to, take to the bank. You may never have that experience. You have a different karma and that's fine. And so we have a great opportunity to seek out or search out that which we need to know. We need to be responsible for our own learning. We need to be responsible for unpacking and understanding our own experience. And that will take up all your time. It will not leave any time for looking at others, judging others, talking about others, or, or any of that if we spend our time doing that. And before we know it, there's a kind of, of happiness that begins to arise regardless of what's happening out there because we find some kind of inner stability some kind of, of uh, ability to see something arising and know that, okay, there's no way that this can exist right now except the conditions that bring it together have come together. So it's no point in me getting angry about it there because it's already here. What I need to do is if I want the next moment, the next week, the next month, the next year to be different than this, then I have to do something right here, right now, that starts to set up that. If I don't, if I'm uh, ruminating in the past about how this came about and those dastardly people and, and I'm getting all upset, the next moment is going to be the same as the present moment because those kinds of, of, of um, thoughts and actions produce the present moment. Are you with me? And so when we find ourselves in challenging situations, rather than spending all of our time looking, you know, like going to the dark side, we need to look and see what could make this better. Um, and we have to recognize that just because we might have an idea, a knowing of what could make it better, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be better because all things don't depend on just what we think. You know, and we could be absolutely right. But if somebody else has to, to do it to make it better and they don't do it, then it's a good chance it might not get better. And so we have to accept the limitations of this. That is what goes with this Saha world. He said in this world there, there are beings with different minds and different bodies. He said, so there's some worlds, same mind, same body. There's some worlds with, with same mind, different bodies. There's some worlds with different minds, same bodies, but this one is different minds and different bodies. How do you expect us all to agree? And so unless we find a way of walking through this world, being able to live with disagreement, we're going to be unhappy every day. And so we know some people who are unhappy every day. So we have to be careful who we listen to. We have to be careful um, who we hang around. You know, he talks about what is, uh, uh, now I'm going to really get to the Dharma talk. Uh, it's uh, from the, oh, that's not it. From the Sutta, as much as I've read this book, 
this morning, I was directed to this sutta, and I honestly can't remember having ever read this sutta. And I've read this book many, many times. Uh, give me one second. Let me just look at the... I pull my slip out, and I can't find the sutta quickly. But I read it five times. I can tell you what it said. He said, there are four situations in the world and four kinds of people. There are people who wish for conditions to be better, situations to be better. And yet, although they wish for them to be better in the future, they turn out being worse or the same. He said, there are people who wish for conditions to be better. And in the future, conditions are better or they are the same. He said, there are people who wish for uh, conditions for others to fall apart. But when they look, because they're unwholesome, but when they look, those conditions don't fall apart. We wonder, like, why, you know, uh, the, like, evil folk seem to prosper, okay? And there are those who wish for things that are unwholesome to fall apart, and they do fall apart. And he said, if you are an ordinary, untaught, run-of-the-mill person, then when you wish for something, you don't have the capacity to bring that wish into fulfillment. Said, but when you are a taught and disciplined person who has cultivated what should be cultivated and abandoned what should be abandoned, then you have the capacity to put into the future right now an ingredient that will change, that will modify the future. And so he says, the problem is most of us don't know what should be cultivated and what should not be cultivated. And so when we were starting this morning, we started with our, uh, uh, our recitation of the Ten Virtues, a vow to avoid killing living things, you know, meaning surely I'm not for war. I vow to avoid taking what is not given. Now, stealing is not just stealing something like money. It's stealing a person's reputation. It's stealing. stealing is taking from someone something that was not offered, something that wasn't given, robbing them of something that belongs to them. I vow to avoid sensual misconduct. Now, a lot of times, most times, almost all the time, that's um, translated as sexual misconduct. But the word there is plural, so it's uh, sensual. And he talks about the senses all the time and what our sense gates are. And he talks about, you know, the eyes, the ears, the nose, the mind, the, mind, the, the tongue, uh, the skin, the tactile sensation. These are our sense bases. And he says, when we vow to avoid sensual misconduct, it means we set a watch over, we restrain the sense gates. That means that we, we find a way of living in the world that the ear is not running off to hear everything, not running off to hear that which is unwholesome, not, uh, the eye is not looking at everything, wanting everything, uh, desiring everything, greedy for everything. The mind is not always like, just always fabricating. You know, and, and the thing is that mind doesn't really know whether it's real or whether it's Memorex. And uh, uh, so some of y'all too young to know what that is. But when the tapes first came out, they'd have this lady sing opera, blah, 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 and then the glass would shatter, you know, and it was Memorex tape and said that didn't even know whether it was whether that was live or whether that was a recording. They sold a lot of tapes. Uh, and so uh, a, a sensual restraint is more about that because that's what gets us into trouble. Uh, and he said that, that the limited 
uh, capacity of those gates um, do not allow us to really get the full story about anything. So I can have an experience with someone and it's very, um, it could be a, a, you know, not a good experience and I just form a complete opinion about that person based on that experience or, you know, uh, and it could be an experience over a long time too, but that's not all that there is to, to a, a person. You know, even a psychopath's mother loves them, you know, uh, or mother or, or, or uh, a psychopath will love their mother. Uh, well, some eat them too. But it's, it's not being, having the full story and making a full judgment about something with partial information. So he says we have to be careful about that. And that's what we do all the time. Our whole world is made of that. And so we have a whole made up world. And it's made up of the minds of people uh, who speak out of that mind and who act out of that mind. So we could cure 95% of the problems. I mean, that's a good number. That's a good percentage. Uh, we could cure 95% of our problems in the world if each one could just guard their sense gates. And so he talks about other things. And he says a lot of things about the mouth, about the tongue. You know, he's a harsh speech, malicious speech, gossip. You know, he has a lot. He just keeps, uh, uh, because most of our problems, most of our troubles come from unwholesome, unwholesome speech. Acting out, you know, he said if the mind thinks something but doesn't act on it, then actually, you know, um, an unwholesome action cannot not occur. It's only when the mind thinks it and then we speak it, even if we just speak it to ourselves and then we act on it, that we actually commit a fault. So sometimes things come to your mind, but soon, you know, and when they come, we might think, um, well, I know I shouldn't do this. But, and then we start justifying why like this time we, but I have to do it. This time we make a reason why we have to do it. And that's why it says that the minute when a thought pops up, put it into two categories, wholesome, unwholesome. Not like good for me, bad for them. Not like bad for me, good for them. It says the thought itself, wholesome, unwholesome, beneficial, unbeneficial, useful, or, or unuseful. And he said, and then make a decision and a determination right then and right there how you will respond to the situation based on your immediate knowledge and understanding of whether a thing is wholesome or unwholesome. But we have to think on it. Some of us have to pray on it. Some of us have to, you know, and by the time we finish and we've done our tick list of, we mostly like justify whether it's been good, you know, been good for us. And then we, uh, and then we do it. And he says that's the wrong way to do it. That that's when the selfing comes in, and so he speaks of this non-self being the place where we can collide with wisdom, and we can walk away uh, more compassionate and more uh, unified with with the world. So in this little book, um, no religion. He says something that I like to, and I like to just read this because no need of reinventing the wheel. He says, I'd like to give an example, a simple example of people language. He said, you have to understand uh, Dharma, there's Dharma language, and then there's people language. And Dharma language is not people language. Water, we'll use that word, water will suffice. People who don't know much about even the simplest things that there are many different kinds of water. We can agree that, um, that there are various kinds of water uh, as if they have nothing in common. They distinguish rainwater from well water, 
from underground water, from canal water, from swamp water, ditch water, gutter water, sewer water, toilet water, urine, diarrhea, and many other kinds of water from each other. Average people will insist that these waters are completely different because such people take external appearances as their criteria. A person with some knowledge, however, knows that pure water can be found in every kind of water. If we take the rainwater and distill it, if we'll get the pure water. If we take the river water and distill it, we'll get pure water. Same for the sewer water, the toilet water, and even the urine, if it is distilled, we can extract the pure water. A person with this understanding knows that all those different kinds of water are the same as far as the water component is concerned. And as for those elements which make that water uh, impure and look different, they are not the water itself. They combine with the water and they alter the water, therefore, but they are not the water itself. And if we look through the polluting elements, we can see the water that is always the same. For in every case, the essential nature of water is the same. However many kinds of water there may be, they are all the same as far as the essential nature of water is concerned. And if we look at things from this viewpoint, we can see that, well, here he's talking about all religions are the same. But on a more intelligent level, we can take that pure water and we can examine it further. Then we must conclude that there's not really no water, right? Because there's only two parts hydrogen and one part oxygen, H2O. Now, there is no water left. That substance that we have been calling water has now disappeared. It's void. The same is true everywhere. No matter where we find the two parts of hydrogen and one part of water, whether it's in the sky, in the ground, or wherever these parts are, find, are found, the state of water has now disappeared, and the term water is null and void. For one who has penetrated to this level of truth, there's no such thing as water. And in the same way, one who has attained to the ultimate truth sees things like this. Says it's just that we haven't realized it. So he starts with a method of us breaking ourselves down. First into materiality and mentality. Mind. Mind and body. And, he's, and, and he breaks that down further. The body into a, a heap of something. Five aggregates. Uh, and, and first you have form, feeling. Consciousness, uh, thoughts, form, feeling. I'm missing one. Come on, you scholars. For, yes, perception and perception. And so when we start looking at these areas, then we see that some things or some of our ignorance arises due to perception. We find that some of our ignorance arises due to a feeling that we have in the form. Some of, uh, and the form is comprised of earth, air, fire, water, and space. And so he he breaks us down, breaks us down until we actually cannot find ourselves. No more Panyawadi. It's just these five aggregates. And then within one of the five aggregates is five parts. Then where then is Panyawadi? But it doesn't mean I go around like I'm like earth, air, fire, water, space. Like what's your name? Form, feel, and perception. Uh, you know. But he helps us to break down the erroneous uh, view, the ordinary view of being a fixed individual self. And as we break these parts down, then we start examining and coming to a conclusion that that is really true. Now he tells us when we start to meditate, to let our meditation be like this. He said, let your meditation be like the, like the earth. You can spit on the earth, you can throw trash on the earth, but the earth's not offended, the earth is not humiliated, the earth it just doesn't care. There is nothing there for the earth to, to uh, rise up and have aversion to. He said, your meditation should be like that. So when we're sitting in meditation, we're giving up both offense for the world and we're giving up any grasping or craving for the world. 
That's basically what meditation is. But there's something that happens when we do that. When we do that, we come to a clearing. We come to a space that where we're not inundated and overcome by all of the erroneous appearances that we see in the outer world. All of that gets erased. All of it falls away. And we see that it wasn't really real in the way that we thought it was real. Mostly it was mind concocted. And so when we reach that space, there is this um, falling away of the, of the dukkha that was there from the contrived appearances. And so the unsatisfactoriness dissolves. And so the sense of it being uh, me or my having a, 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 a being a separate entity, uh, it, it falls away. And we come to find a security and a safety and a comfort in insecurity. So that's the first wisdom, that there is no security to be found anywhere in this world. And as long as you're looking for some somewhere, in your partner, in your money, in your, you know, your, in your things, it, it, you're going to be unhappy because it's not to be found. It cannot be found anywhere. And so he takes us through this series of examinations in that way. Some of us have to do all of them to get it. Some of us can just do one like I got it, I got it, you know. But that's what meditation is. And we talk about concentration coming to single pointed uh, focus. And we're going to do some of this in uh, two, three minutes. Coming to single pointed uh, focus of single pointed awareness. Now, the reason he talks about this is, is, is not so that we can uh, get into an argument about, you know, uh, concentration, you know, versus mindfulness or something like that. It is to gather, to gather our wits, to gather all of our resources and focus them in one area. So when you have light, this def uh, I think it's called diffraction, def refraction, okay. So then that gives us light and we can see a room, but if we were to put it all together, it comes through like a laser beam, it cuts, it can cut even the, the you know, the, the most compact material. That's if you think of concentration in that way, you understand why we need to have it. You understand why it serves a purpose, not just so that you can get a little bit of tranquility so that you can uh, examine the true nature of reality, because you can't see the true nature of reality with the mind scattered the way it is. And so the greater the concentration, the greater the insight. It's like I can, I want to go and, and, and take a, a look at the a forest and and you drive me up to the forest and I get out the door and I stand there and there I am among the trees. I can't see the forest for the trees. But concentration is like taking me up on a ridge and I'm observing, I'm looking at the forest over on the other ridge. From this view up here, I can see the whole, I can see the whole forest. And so when we understand it in that way, we know the value of concentration and that it's not so difficult to become concentrated. And he gives us 40 different objects that we can use. Pick whichever one is good for you. If you don't know what they are, you can Google them. Just Google Buddhism 40 meditation subjects. And, it'll get, and there are many more than 40. I guess at 40 he just stopped. He said, you get the idea. You can take anything and use it as a meditation subject. Now, I personally, I use space. That's, that's, that's what I use. I started with the breath. He gave us a way of how to use the breath. And he said, like a sawyer saws a log. And I, I repeat this every time because the instruction um, is the same every time. Like a sawyer saws a log. And though he saws back and forth, his eye never leaves the place where the teeth of the blade meet the log. He said, let. Your mindfulness of breathing be like that. So we're not falling about, <gasps> but one place where we feel the external wind becoming internal wind, wherever that is for you. I find it right here at the tip of the nose, but some people swear they feel it in the belly. Wherever you 
feel that external wind now becoming internal wind. When it's out here, we call it wind, air, whatever. When it's in here, we call it me. Yeah? When there's water out there, we call it water. But once we drink it, we call it me. But he said it's just external water, internal water. External wind, internal wind. We've made a distinction about things. And this is for breaking down that kind of distinction until we come to a unified mind. In that place of a unified mind is where we can access what there is to know beyond the mind that has been informed by the sense gates making contact with outer phenomena. That's it in a nutshell. And so, whatever, however much contact you make <laughs> is how much you know. Make little contact, you know a little. Make a lot of contact, you know a lot. But it's in that space where the mind is unified. So it's not you against the world. But there is just this. And no sense of a separate self. So if in all your meditation, you were so aware that I was meditating, you have not touched that space. But if you have touched that space, you know that it can be apprehended. And that, the Buddha said, is where the clarity is found. And so he said, like uh, a gatekeeper, he doesn't care where a person comes from, he only counts them when they step from outside the gate to inside the gate. Then he doesn't care where they go. He said, let your mindfulness of breathing be like that. That is what establishes mindfulness in front of us. So they're, they're inextricable. You can't separate them. That's what establishes mindfulness in front of us. And so he says, I am taking you from the city, the sights, the sounds, the, the sense, the energy of the city. And he said, I take my disciples back then to the forest. What is the forest void of? It's void of the sights and the sounds and the sense of the city. He said, but then after they've been in the forest for a while, they are aware of the sights and the sounds and the sense of the forest. He said, then I take them to the earth, just to the earth. So there's this process of withdrawing. And as we do that, there is from the world and its nature of unsatisfactoriness to Nibbana and the satisfactoriness that it provides then a dispassion begins to set in, a dispassion for the world. It doesn't mean I hate the world, I hate life, let's all drink the Kool-Aid. It doesn't mean that at all. But you start to see the faults in it. You start to see where you've misunderstood. He has a teaching that, that uh, um, sorrow is born from those who are dear. Right away when I taught that student, oh no, it's wonderful to have a husband, to have a wife, to have children. I said, yeah, but when my child dies, you feel, you feel a little sadness for me. But when your child dies, there's sorrow there. You know, sorrow's born from those who are dear. I mean, then that's just a truism, but it's very hard for us to see it. Except for at that moment when someone dear does die then like maybe we can see it then. But he says it's always like that. But if you know it's like that, then the sorrow's not there because how could it be any other way? It's in these ways, step by step, that the clarity and the truth of the teachings come alive inside of you so that you can uh, live in the world without being discouraged and without grasping, and without feeling that you need to take from others. And you can become content. You can become satisfied with little. We can uh, have fewness of wishes. I tell you, when I had things, then I had to watch over things. 
course, I have something that I'm responsible for watching over now. And I'm going to tell you, it does bring dukkha. I'm like, why did I start this? Because I was so free. You know, I was so free with nothing. So free with no responsibilities. So free. Why? <laughs> but it was out of the gratitude for the freedom that I found that I wanted to create a place that people could also find this freedom. So if I suffer a little bit, if it causes me a little dukkha, all I have to do is say, Paniwadi, right there is where you need to look, because only a self would be suffering. You know? So whenever any suffering arises from me because of circumstances, because of you know, relationships, because of situations, I just know, ah, oh, there's some more Paniwadi left. That's all. And I start sitting right there with that. And then I go into this space where Paniwadi dissolves. And when I come out of it, I know that this whole thing about Paniwadi and her suffering, that's just stuff she made up in her mind and decided she wanted to fixate over. That's, that's the only difference between suffering and not suffering, is we make a decision. We want to fixate over something that's not the way we want it to be. And the Buddha just simply says, we can all grow up. Hmm. But it takes practice. This sounds strange and foreign. Sounds like I might have to give up something. Sounds like somebody might take something from me. And people do take things from me. So we have a practice of accepting defeat and giving the victory to others and finding the freedom even in that. You know, and after a while, nothing in this world will bind us. He said, and then Nibbana won't be something that we're looking for that we think is on the other shore. He said, we will abide in Nibbana, the unbinding, the unborn, the unmade, the uncreated here and now. But we start with the baby steps, just putting little things into practice to see if they're true or not, to figure out how to adjust it and to make it uh, work for us. And we sit with it, and we sit with it. And one day, how could I have missed that? As plain as the nose on my face. And then some joy comes, some confidence comes. I just let that thing go. I just drop that, and I feel so free. And then we'll read things that say when someone does this to you. You know, um, I was, uh, I had a, a, and then I'm through. I had a situation with a, a contractor here, and um, he did something wrong, and I was after him for three or four months to fix it, and he didn't fix it, and it stalled the project. And I got to the place I had to move on. And the only way that I could move on was either I had to eat what he did wrong, which was $28,000 worth to fix it, or take him to court. I said, I'll just eat it, because the Buddha says a nun should not take anyone to court. So I said, I'll just, I'll just eat it. So I was talking about it with my strategic planner and with my lawyer and with, and they're like, no, you gotta, you gotta get that because you have an obligation, you know, um, to be a good steward over this money. I said, yeah, I, I understand that. But we have a certain way of living in the world that we have to believe that 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 works and even when something appears to be a loss now in the future there will be the gain from the seeds that I plant the good seeds that I plant and I might just have to wait for them. or it may not even come in this lifetime but if you plant an apple tree and all the conditions are right, you will get apples, you will not get lemons. So that's what governs our conduct. We don't need a, a God to govern our conduct. We can just look at something as simple as planting seeds of one kind and know that it'll only produce fruit after its own kind. Okay. So they got on me so bad, you gotta do this, so I file. Okay, when I file, that holds up everything for real. 
That holds up the next draw. That holds up. And finally, I said, I've got to let it go because I need to move on. I'll just, I'll just eat it. So now to dismiss it, I have to be the one who agrees not to bring it up again. You know, not just dismiss it so I can move on and then go back and refile. I have to sign a thing that I won't, won't, I won't bring this back. Um, and it wasn't just that one thing he did. We audited everything he did, and we found a few other things to audit in, in deficiencies in the work. And so I, I, I let it go, and I, I paid that, and we went on and we finished our project. Well, I was sitting there in meditation just two days ago, and that whole thing came up. And when it came up, you know, I was telling somebody, I'm not upset with him. He's just doing what he does. You know, people are just being who they are based on what knowledge, information, wisdom, compassion, and sense of rightness they have, you know. And I'm not upset with him. I'm sorry that it rolled out that way for me, <laughs> you know, but I'm not upset with him. I understand that people are, are, who, they are who they are. And, uh, and so I was sitting there thinking that. And the more I started thinking that, the more some anger started to creep in. <laughs> the anger started to creep in. It started to, you know, that thing started to come back again. And I saw how that dissatisfaction re-arose by virtue of my thoughts. And when I saw it, I immediately crushed it. I went to the good things that he did do. I went to the break that he did give me. We probably even because he gave me a discount because he'd never seen a nun before. And when he was out fighting with his other clients, he'd get in his truck and he'd come over here and say, you need to calm me down because I'm about to kill somebody right now. And I would, you know. And so it probably all works out even. But however I think about it in my mind is the way that it's gonna be for me. That will be my map of reality. So like that actor says, what's in your wallet? What's your reality? If you look at it, you have to know that it is truly just your reality. It is just your perception. If you're at odds with somebody, they have a whole different reality, a whole different view, you know. If you don't like it and it's already happened, the past is gone. No point in going back there because you're just fabricating and creating stuff now. But what can you do in the future that inures to your contentment, to your acceptance, to your satisfaction, to your happiness? Once you find the key to that for yourself, you want it for everyone else. It starts with sitting. Sit one minute, or you can sit two minutes. It doesn't take sitting 45 minutes or five hours Don't un until you just want to sit that long. Otherwise, that's just excruciating pain and torture, and the mind is just going to run because it can't do it. But just sit for one minute, taking first your attention to the breath. Feeling the air as it enters the nostrils and as it leaves. Not forcing it, not doing anything with it, just being with it. And noticing that when you do that, you suddenly become hyper-aware, acutely aware of sensations in your body. And you become aware of a mood in the mind a state, 
a mental state. And if we can just acknowledge that there is a mental state there, we don't have to name it, call it anything. And there is feeling in the body. And he asks us to just do this for some time, one minute, two minutes, as long as you can do it. And maybe that's all that you can do. That's fine. Maybe in some downtime this afternoon, you can sit for another minute, just sitting, breathing, until you get used to just sitting, just breathing and being with the breath. In time, you'll begin to notice something, that just this little simple action causes something to happen within the body. It triggers and signals certain endorphins to release. And one finds a physical calmness beginning to settle in the body. And a mental stillness in the mind. Just experiencing the ease of this physical and mental calmness is all that's asked. And in time, you can do this not just one minute or two minutes, but five minutes or ten minutes. And it becomes something like rushing off to see your lover. When, when you're there, you want to spend as much time, quality time, with them as you can. And although there may be other distractions, like the sound of the air conditioner, the movement of someone next to you, actually you're not that interested in that. And the mind, although a sense gate will go out and detect that sound through habit, after a while it will not want to leave the tranquility of this space. And there's an inner sweetness that begins to emerge. And also a kind of confidence that there may just be something to this sitting. And he said, and we experience a pleasant abiding here and now. Okay, and then we come out and we get back to our normal way of being in the world. But we have something to compare it with. And after a while, that starts to draw us towards just those few minutes of stillness, 
just those few minutes of ease, just those few minutes of pleasantness, just those few minutes of not wrangling, of not thinking, of not just sitting. And we go to the next step. After we have gotten this part down to where it is a joy, it is a pleasure to step aside, to let go of the outer world for just a few minutes. Then he begins the training and he takes us through 16 different steps, breathing in and breathing out, we train. And he gives us 16 different areas to train in. So it's a step-by-step process, and we really don't go to the next one until we master the previous. To do it, we don't get stable enough in the previous one. So we have a middling accomplishment in the next level. And then by the time we get up to the top, we hardly have any accomplishment at all. We're just talking about, about it. We're not really experiencing it. That's That's the difference. So keep a beginner's mind. Don't despise small beginnings. Find the breath and learn to make it your trusted friend. Sit with it. There, that's the portal. The Buddha said that's the way. Now when we are passing from one place to the next and we come upon the portal, the the entrance, we don't like just make a bed, build a house, stay in the entrance. We pass through, right? So meditation is not the end of everything. It is just the portal, the passageway, uh, the doorway. So we pass through that to the other side. And that's where the clarity is, the wisdom, the compassion. And the uh, he called it the middle way, the place where we're not attached to anything in this world. That's where the freedom is for me and for you. May you be well and happy and peaceful. May no harm come to you and no danger. May you always be able to meet the inevitable difficulties of life. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.